What does it take to be a part of the private equity team at one of the world's best-known asset managers? How can the private equity industry be more inclusive when it comes to LGBTQ representation? And what's the outlook for consumer, media and leisure investments against the current macro backdrop? We'll be discussing all this and more today in conversation with Blackstone's Alex Walsh in this new episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome to today's episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. My name's Harriet Matthews. I'm funds editor at Merger Market and Unquote, and I'll be your host for today. We've got another episode for you today in our In Conversation With series, where we hear from leading private equity industry voices. For this episode, I spoke to Blackstone Senior Managing Director, Alex Walsh. Alex started off his career with Barclays, and he also has experience with firms including Capvest and Towerbrook. He joined Blackstone just over a year ago, and he focuses there on the consumer, media and leisure sectors, with board roles including Born Leisure, a UK-headquartered leisure and holiday group. I spoke to Alex about his career in private equity, what it took for him to get to the place he's in now, and his current outlook on the market. We also spoke about how the industry has changed over the course of his career including in terms of LGBTQ plus representation, which is a topic that some of you might be aware is close to Alex's heart and something he's actively involved with alongside his investment activities and responsibilities. We also covered how diversity, equity and inclusion fits into the broader picture on all three letters of ESG. With that, let's listen to the interview with Alex. Hello, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. Absolutely. Now, just to kind of start off with a sort of bigger bigger picture, stepping back in, in time a little bit, I guess. Um, obviously, Blackstone is a household name very much in terms of asset management and private equity. But you know, I'm always interested in how people end up in these particular roles. Um, I don't know if it's something that you know you had thought about for a very long time, whether that was a kind of, you know, dream job, people talk about, you know, that just in terms of goals, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So essentially, I'd be interested to hear a bit about what actually motivated you to get into private equity in the first place. Sure. So I guess uh, I I grew up in a single family household and moved schools um, a bunch of times every couple of years. So private equity wasn't really on my radar um, growing up. And I guess at university, um, I was attracted to go into the financial services industry really for two reasons. One is it seemed to be where a lot of people were going at that time. So this was in sort of the 2004s, four, five, six time. Um, And the second is having grown up very poor, I was very focused on a route to securing financial stability for me and my family. And this seemed like a a uh, sensible way to to do it. Um, so that took me into financial services, into investment banking. And it was really there that I discovered private equity. Um, and uh, I'd always had a kind of fascination with business, which sounds like a cliche, but it's sort of true. Um, and private equity seemed a very interesting way of continuing my career in financial services, but with a more of a business focus. Um, and so once I'd come across it, I thought that looked really interesting and then uh, joined uh, a smaller fund where I spent about eight years uh, and then I moved to Blackstone um, about a year and a half ago. And uh, I mean, today, 
I, I pinch myself almost every day. I think I have the best job in the world. Um, it is, you know, extraordinary that we get to learn every single day, interact with the most fascinating people, um, decide whether we're going to invest in businesses, invest in businesses, work with them on strategy, et cetera, et cetera. So had I known that this existed when I was a child, I certainly would have wanted to go into it, but uh, uh, gl glad I did. Um, and I guess implicit in your question there is also why and how I ended up at Blackstone specifically. And I suppose if you do have a career in private equity, you, you can't not know Blackstone. Um, and so candidly, it was deeply fracturing when the opportunity to join the firm arose. Uh, and I often say a, a world where Blackstone offers you to come and join and you decline seemed like a, seems like an alien world to me. So I'm very, very happy to be there. Yeah, makes a, a lot of a lot of sense, and I suppose it's also, you know, taken a lot of hard work to to get to where you are. I think it's easy to forget sometimes the sort of people behind the GPs and the funds and the work that goes into it. I mean, what would you kind of say helped you to get to where you are in terms of skills or in terms of particular experiences that you had? I think probably you know growing up gay and as I described in a sort of challenging childhood um i think i think in hindsight uh benefited me hugely for my career now um in in two main ways one is um i do think that if you grow up lgbtq you probably develop a heightened eq uh partly i think it's a defense and survival mechanism um and that becomes very very valuable uh, i think in all careers but particularly in private equity um, and so I think I was able to develop a intuitive for people um, and able to identify kind of what makes them tick and build relationships quite quickly. Um, and we are, people often think that we're in the numbers business and there's a lot of numbers and analysis that goes on in our work, but we are above all else, a people business. Uh, people in our organization are our most important asset. The people running businesses really determine the outcome. And so being able to kind of read people and build relationships, I think, has been a real asset. And then the second is uh, developing a certain level of resilience. Own, I often say owning companies is, is not, uh, you know, it's not fun every day. Uh, there's always, you know, stuff going on. And, and uh, in, in all areas of the career, you, you do need a level of resilience. It, you know, it's hard work. Persuading investment committees to make investments is not easy, and as I say, owning companies is is not easy. Uh, it's not that it's not like you buy a company and then immediately find like Monet's hidden in the basement. There's always uh, there's always stuff going on. So I think uh, a, a degree of resilience has also been really helpful. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, as as you say, a lot of kind of what you do is about people. Um, as I kind of you know mentioned earlier as well, it's something LPs even tell us they kind of do due diligence on. Um, so yeah, certainly important. And then when it comes to winning investments as well, I guess. Absolutely. And um, thinking about, you said sort of 2004, 5, 6 is when you were thinking of going into financial services, I think. But thinking about the PE industry since you've been a part of it, how has that changed? So, you know, obviously it's, it's got bigger on a very basic level. Things are more sophisticated, but, you know, doing your job now versus how you might have approached it 10 plus years ago, how, or how has the industry changed ultimately? Sure. I mean, I think it's, it's changed in many ways. Um, a couple that kind of immediately stand out are one, when I sort of was first aware of the industry as I first went into financial services, 
it was certainly known for having a great, a very high degree of focus on cost uh, and efficiency and running businesses, you know, cost effectively and, and, and more efficient. And I can definitely look back and see over my career, the focus on growth has um, ex- expanded hugely. And today we are extremely focused on growing businesses. So I think, first of all, a, a focus on investing behind growth has become uh, a huge change and is really what the industry uh, at large now focuses on. Um, and I think secondly, increasingly, maybe this is a bit more of a more recent change, but where the where the invest vestees are coming from. Uh, and so when I entered the industry, it was exclusively sort of very large institutional investors with the occasional ultra high net worth individual able to participate. Um, and one of the areas and one of the things Blackstone's been very focused on is democratizing the asset class effectively. And that's definitely a trend that started a few years ago, but is continuing uh, as we make you know, make the asset class more and more available to a much broader group of people and create vehicles which are specifically designed for people with different financial profiles. Um, I, I think maybe the last thing actually is I do think that um, coupled with that fo- increasing focus on growth, the industry has become more mainstream, as you as you say, and more accepted and frankly, sort of higher valued. So particularly during the pandemic, people realized that actually having uh, investment funds like us behind our businesses is, is extremely valuable. You know, we, we invested hugely in, in our businesses through the pandemic to make sure that they survived and thrived coming out of it. Um, and so I definitely feel that as you interact with people, there's a, you know, an, a, an appreciation for the important role that the industry plays. Yes, and um, particularly the first two points you've made there, I think, are very much linked to the kind of current macro climate as well. Um, we hear a lot about how the kind of playbook from a classic LBO, you know, approach to leverage has been shifting in favor of, as you say, growth, buy and build, that kind of thing. And, you know, also when it comes to kind of looking at alternative pools of capital for fundraising, um, it makes makes sense. It's part of a kind of longer longer term trend that you've highlighted, I guess. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you, um, or sort of pick up on something you you mentioned in terms of kind of your own skills and experiences and what drew you into private equity, linking to how the industry's changed as well. I know that um, LGBTQ plus kind of representation is very much something that you spend time thinking about and sort of speaking about and are involved with. Can you give an overview of sort of how how that side of things or representation has has changed in your view over the time you've been in the PE industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I would say uh, it has improved hugely in my career. However, there is still a lot that can and should be done, and there's still a long way to go. Um, I guess as as I grew up in the industry and in the business industry at large, there was almost no openly gay people that I could remember or role models that I could look up to. Um, and so I definitely feel a kind of responsibility and an opportunity to use the seat that I uh, am blessed to have landed in at Blackstone to um, hopefully be a bit of a role model to people. Um, and it's, it's sort of wonderful that all, all I need to do is be out and be myself. Um, and in doing so, hopefully can um, make more and more people feel that they can succeed in in this industry and uh, and it's definitely something I, I didn't have and hope that in my small way I can um, provide to others. Um, and d- definitely, as I say, a lot has changed and a lot has improved. So at Blackstone, we have a, a thriving 
um, affinity network for LGBTQ community called Out Blackstone that wouldn't have existed when I was uh, starting my career. Um, there are increasing um, sort of cross-firm affinity groups establishing as well uh, to help people network and and uh, essentially know that they're not alone. Um, so a, lot, a lot's been done, um, but still much to do. I'm often shocked and saddened by the number of messages I get through LinkedIn of people in private equity, in financial services, in the broader business world, young people who are not out, don't feel comfortable being out. Um, and, you know, there are still a very large number of countries in the world that, you know, it's illegal for my partner and I to visit. Um, and there are still areas of our own countries that we, you know, would be careful to visit. Um, and so I definitely feel like you know, if as long as there is one person left who does not feel comfortable being out at work, the the mission will not have you know, be completed and, and there's a long way to go on that. Um, one thing I sometimes mention, uh, which I think is important for people to keep in mind, and e- even our community doesn't necessarily think about this, is there is a, there's a very particular trauma that LGBTQ people go through as children. Um, uh, certainly I did, and, and I think this is true of, of, uh, of a large number of people in the community, which is uh, as a young person growing up, when you realize that you are LGBTQ, you're not too focused on the impact at, in the world or even in the workplace. What you're focused on is your parents uh, and the threat of, and in many, many cases, the actual rejection of your parents. Um, and so I remind people of this because if you grow up thinking that the most important relationship in your life um, could be threatened by this characteristic of you, you, you will have a, you will naturally have a, a heightened sensitivity to this throughout your life. Um, and I also think it's one of those things where you, you feel incredibly alone at that point, right? So it is really only you versus your parents. Uh, and so again, I think that's why these affinity groups are so important is People, the LGBTQ community can t- carries that kind of fear of rejection, often actual rejection, uh, and the feeling of being alone in this uh, throughout their lives. Uh, and so I often, I, I always, I, I laugh, but I, I actually don't think we can see too many rainbow flags uh, just to show that, you know, society is welcoming and that you're not alone. No, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of, I suppose, when when you're you're younger, you know, the kind of parents, immediate family, that's your whole world, but it does get bigger when it's the workplace. And private equity ultimately is is a workplace. Um, you know, some might say it's kind of a way of, of life. It's a very kind of all-encompassing career. But is there more or, or what would you kind of recommend that em- employers do just to create a kind of inclusive environment and avoid some of those pitfalls around kind of exclusion or, or rejection that you've mentioned? Yeah, I think I, I sort of answer that question in two ways, I think. One is, um, again, I, I I always encourage our organization and, and, and any organizations I interact with not to be afraid to kind of do too much. Because <laughs> um, again, just having that empathy that this community is expecting to be rejected because of the childhood experience and therefore sort of over-indexing on visual cues, uh, that sort of thing, I, th- I think can be helpful. The second, I often um, say to particularly allies, uh, and, and you know we are blessed as a community with many people who want to help um, and improve things for us, that, that it's as simple as uh, if you're not LGBTQ, just imagine that one of your children was. 
uh, and, you know, maybe come into work on Monday morning and imagine, and by the way, they may well be, you, you just may not know. Um, so just come into the office on Monday morning and think, gosh, if, if one of my children was LGBTQ, like what could I do this week or this month that would just make this a slightly better environment for them? Um, and I think if you have that kind of lens, you'll, you'll be able to think of something because, you know, every situation and circumstance and team and business is different and therefore it has to be tailored. But I feel like that question helps clarify, you know, for, for people what, how they should be thinking about it. Very good point. And people talk about inclusion and, and change when it comes to diversity um, or you know, DEI in, in the workplace coming from you know, leaders and, and from the top. And I suppose an understanding and a kind of cultural framework for an organization has to come from there. But it sounds like it is just as important at kind of every level, just people thinking about how they, how they interact with their, with their colleagues, with their friends. Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, again, one of the things that we're working hard on at Blackstone and and there's an organization we work with called Out Leadership that's doing a great job on this as well as increasing the board representation of LGBTQ people, which is, you know, massively lagging. Out Leadership is producing this report, which identifies, you know, boards which have uh, LGBTQ policies in place and and even identifies where board members are. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of kind of making a tangible difference, obviously, there's reporting around this that various organizations, you know, some do voluntarily, some are kind of obliged to do it. I guess it brings us to the question of ESG. How do you see all of this fitting into that? I suppose there's things on the social side, um, mainly, you know, certain things around governance, perhaps if we're linking it to board representation, but ultimately, how how does it kind of fit, you know, within within your organization, within Blackstone and within your portfolio? Yeah, I think of that in, in three ways, <clears throat> uh, the E, the S, and the G. The S is somewhat obvious, right, which is societal. I'm going to borrow from the, the chief executive of Out Leadership. He often talks about um, environment being more than just the sort of uh, the traditional definition of environment being the climate, um, but the environment that we operate and work in as well. Um, and so, you know, that's where affinity groups and making the, those sort of visual cues that I mentioned about making sure that people of all backgrounds feel that the environment that they're working in uh, is safe uh, and friendly and open to them. Um, and I, I sometimes say at the firm, actually, that we, we can't change the world, but what we can do is make sure that when an LGBTQ person walks into our building as an employee, that they feel safe. And I, and I think that is our duty and that's what we strive to do. Um, and then it's also good governance. Um, one of the things that I feel we're very lucky in private equity and in the investing business is we know that diversity of thought is extremely valuable to our business and and the opposite is very dangerous to our business. So groupthink is is very dangerous in the investing business and therefore attracting people to a room and participate in a conversation from a diverse background. And that that's not just LGBTQ, that's that's literally background of all sorts. Um is both great for society, but is better for our business. Uh, and that improves the governance of our of our investment process and also of our portfolio companies. So um, definitely you know, making sure that diversity is, is linked into ESG. Um, and the other thing I think I sometimes sort of say to people is, is when talking about diversity specifically, uh, sort of keep speaking. So often uh, what is front of people's mind at the moment is very much about uh, female diversity, and people of color, uh, but let's you know make sure we keep speaking and say LGBTQ, even um, background, et cetera, et cetera, so that we uh, you know make sure that we're in we're doing the best we can. 
Yes, and, and that kind of diversity, ensuring diversity on all fronts, I guess, should ultimately link back into performance and returns. This is the kind of argument that's made around ESG, you know, at, at any rate. Absolutely. No, McKinsey does a lot of great work on proving the business case of how uh, increased diversity has very real um, positive business um, impact. So absolutely. And thinking about the kind of broader picture now in terms of investing at Blackstone, obviously, our listeners will be aware of the kind of current environment we're operating in, you know, around the cost of capital, around challenges around getting deals done. But, you know, my understanding is your focus is on the kind of consumer sector in terms of what, what you do. So I'd be interested to get a bit of a kind of outlook from you on kind of how you're approaching the challenges around that, whether it's the kind of portfolio level or, or new deals, where are the opportunities? Absolutely. Well, but so the, the glib answer is we're approaching it very carefully. Um, I guess, yeah, my focus is uh, I, I look after the consumer leisure and media sectors uh, here in Europe. Um, and the, the, the simple answer actually is, is at Blackstone, we are very thematic, very thematic in our approach to investing. Um, and we really look to invest in leading businesses that are operating in attractive markets with fundamental and what we believe are long-term secular tailwinds, which often internally and externally we refer to as good neighborhoods. Um, and so within that kind of broader consumer landscape, um, we're very excited about the long-term trends around the digital consumer. All of our lives are increasingly digital, and we think that that is a long-term trend that is here to stay. Um, it links into, into leisure, which is an area we've been very active and continue to be active, which is we're very bullish on the long-term experience economy. Uh, and again, you often see in, in your own daily lives, the, more, the amount of money that everybody's spending more on experiences, uh, such as travel, both domestic and foreign, uh, it is you know, just continuing. So we're very excited about that. So those are two areas within the consumer space that, uh, that we're particularly focused on. And anything you're sort of zeroing in on a bit more in terms of diligence around those? I mean, you know, generally price rises, what can be passed on to consumers or users of particular products is um, pretty important at the moment, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our investment approach is essentially identify these great neighborhoods within their invest in businesses that we think are important in their markets. Uh, and therefore have pricing power. And that is particularly acute at the moment, which is with rising inflation, you need to make sure that you're investing in good, important businesses that are able to pass those prices through, particularly in the consumer sector, as you say. Uh, and then, of course, that are led by the best management teams in the world. And that is sustainable in the long term, even in a more challenging macro environment. And has anything changed in terms of the the way or sourcing deals against this backdrop or the, the type of opportunities you're maybe reviewing at the moment? I wouldn't say our, our approach has changed that much in that we're a very um, people-led sourcing activity. Uh, and so our, our approach is really a people-first uh, sourcing effort where we meet the management teams uh, of businesses that we think that we've identified um, could be attractive. So I wouldn't say the go-to-market has changed particularly, um, but clearly the um, uh, we're, we're as conscious as anybody of operating in a higher interest rate, higher inflation environment, uh, and therefore the rigor around that importance of the business and the strength of the business is, uh, is, is extremely important. No, certainly seems like it. And sort of thinking about the, the second half of this year, 
you know, moving into next as well. Um, can you share anything with me and with our listeners about kind of how you're approaching the market, anything you're expecting to, to see challenges, for example? Yeah, I mean, we have the luxury of actually investing for the long term. So we, we don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about what is the next 6, 12 months, but more because uh, we're often owning businesses for 5 to 15 plus years, uh, really identifying those longer term secular trends that I mentioned. And so in the very near term, you know, what we see at the moment is some dislocation in valuations. Uh, the, you know, the stock prices, the, the stock market rather, has um, had a s- severe correction. Uh, that often takes a, a longer time to adjust in the private markets. So we are seeing right now a, a slowdown in activity, which we believe won't last forever, um, but it's certainly here at the moment. But like I say, we don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about the next sort of six, 12 months. It's more, what are the businesses that we want to own in the next five, 10 years? I see. So yeah, I mean, there's plenty of of outstanding questions around kind of when deal flow will come back in the short term, when those valuation expectations will will line up more on the kind of buyer and seller side. But yeah, I guess that that's the thing about private equity. Obviously, you're investing against that backdrop, but holding periods, you know, they're getting longer on average in any case. So um, yeah, you can think more to the more to the medium long term. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, part of the benefits of the private equity business model is we are almost never force sellers of businesses. Of course, that's also true for our competitors. Um, and generally speaking, in in my career, where we've had these sort of adjustments, it's taken between a year and two years to adjust. And so I don't know when you want to sort of start that clock, but we're probably you know a year in to that adjustment. And so maybe things will start to uh, um, loosen in the next 12 months. Yeah, no, I'm sure we'll certainly be hoping so. Our listeners will as well. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time to speak to me. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. If you like the podcast, then please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you again in the next episode.